Good morning to you all. No point beating about the bush, folks. Let us get straight into it. This week, Liveline found itself accused of stoking controversy rather than reflecting it. Um, now, the, the argument for changing the language is, language is always changing, but to make it more inclusive. A debate around the language used to describe transgender women was started last week and continued on Monday by those who argue that trans women can't choose what words they do and don't want to use to describe themselves. Brian called, having heard last week's programmes, and went on to argue his belief that trans women are not women just because they call themselves women. Those three people are identifying as women. They are women as far as the state is concerned. But you're born male. And they're male sex offenders. The arguments that Brian made to Joe moved Katrina to call in. Your con- um, your contribution. Now, you, do you want to comment on what Brian said or do you want to make a... It's up to yourself. I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure really where to start. Um, I personally identify as gender fluid, non-binary, mm. and use they, them pronouns. And specifically about the legislation that we're talking about where woman and mother comes into effect, I feel like it's so kind of important that people who don't identify as women are given the same respect that other people who are able to give birth are. Brian argued that Katrina was nonsensical in how they described themselves. Well, assigned female at birth is just nonsensical. If you ask any doctor, there's no child is assigned at birth. Sex is observed, it's not assigned. And Katrina in turn explained, in their view, why new words in law for women was about inclusivity, not exclusion, and wondered who, if anyone, was really being hurt by these proposed changes. I was assigned female at birth, and mm. but I now don't identify as a woman. But I don't feel like it's a disservice to women to take women out of mm. that legislation. It's just making it more inclusive to more people. And I don't understand why people cannot want things to be more inclusive. It's not like we're getting rid of women's rights. It's just we're expanding what it means to mm. be a parent and be somebody who can give birth. Before long, Brian and Katrina's debate moved away from discussion about changing language and dealt with the unsubstantiated claim that men were identifying as trans solely to gain access to women's only spaces. My daughter down at a gym, when she goes to change, mm-hmm. uh, someone who was born a male, if he has a gender recognition certificate, all he needs to do is rock up and say, there's 15 euro, fill out an A4, swear an affidavit, fill out an A4 sheet of paper, and now he can dress on naked in front of my daughter and there's nothing she can do. Yeah, but has that... Like, Brian, I, 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 has that happened? You see, has it happened? It's Are happening we... all the time. But if Brian had evidence that it was happening all the time, he didn't give it to Joe. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties was concerned with the way the debate had been framed last week and released a statement criticising Liveline. It's a statement from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties on Thursday. After the yes, first programme. Well, I'd, yes. I'd let listeners hear it. Uh, in the context yes. of increasing transphobic and homophobic attacks, this liveline conversation is incredibly irresponsible. Yes. Now, we've been on to the Irish Council for Civil Liberties no less than seven times to yes. ask them about the statement, what they mean by the statement, who wrote the statement, was there a meeting of, they were bored, was there a meeting? Because the statement, as I, I found it, uh, Deeply disturbing, deeply disturbing yeah, yeah. of my 25 years presenting in here to be to be told that a debate on Liveline 
um, was um, incredibly irresponsible in the context of increasing transphobic and homophobic attacks is just so insulting to this yeah. programme and to the staff of this programme and to its listeners as well. But we've been unable to get a response from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. Now, they can tw- they can make statements on whatever they want, but that's the statement you're referring to. And I presume, the powers, I presume yes. the powers that be in RTE have been contacted by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties because if, if, that's their job and they're never behind the door uh, raising issues. But the powers that be in RTE have not told uh, any of the Liveline staff to stop this discussion. This was no longer just a case of Liveline being as ever at the centre of important debate. The programme was in the dock now. And the organisers of Dublin Pride have announced it's terminating its media partnership with RTE, saying it's angered and disappointed by recent discussions about the transgender community on the Liveline programme. It said the recent discussion on Liveline breaches trust with our community and causes untold hurt. Morning Ireland on Wednesday. In this statement at issue, Dublin Pride said it expects better from RTE than to stoke the flames of anti-trans rhetoric, as it put it. And in response, the organisation announced the termination of its media partnership with RTE, adding that over the past three years, it has worked together with the national broadcaster to increase positive representation of LGBTQ plus people on TV, radio and online. And to see the good work of so many people undone, <clears throat> Dublin Pride said it's saddening in the extreme. And then, Morning Ireland on Thursday. RTE is being asked to attend an Earthless Committee next week following controversy over discussions about transgender issues on Radio 1's Liveline. Well, if RTE do appear before the committee, a key thing that we would like to understand is how RTE have found themselves in the position of having their partnership terminated with Dublin Pride. Obviously, we've read both of their statements. We understand what you know some of the discussions that happened online, but we'd like to hear from, in their own words how they believe they got into this situation. There was no need to wait till next week, though. Peter Woods, head of RTE Radio 1, answered Sarah McInerney's questions on Drive Time. I've listened to all three programmes, yeah. And I'm happy to stand over the programmes, yes. Claims were repeatedly made on the programme over the three days that trans women are a threat to the safety of other women. No context was put on the scale and the extent of that threat, if it exists at all. Do you accept that doing that risks demonising trans women and creating fear and loathing about them? There were a lot of things said in those programmes across the three days and across the three days various views were presented and were robustly defended and discussed on the programme. Dublin Pride says the programmes breached trust with the community and caused untold hurt. Do you accept that those programmes caused untold hurt? I accept the programmes for people listening to them obviously caused hurt. Yes, I accept that. And because of where I sit in this organisation and because I have colleagues who took part in Pride, who took part in Pride under an RTE banner, I regret that they caused hurt to people. And yet you stand over them? Yeah, well, I stand over the programmes because we exist as well to debate controversial issues. Everything that goes out on air on Radio 1 is not going to be to everybody's satisfaction all the time. But what matters most in what we do is how we approach it and why we do it and and that we try to shine a light and we try to engage with people and we try to 
express a variety of opinion across the airwaves. So if I'm looking at, in my time as an editor in Radio 1, I'm going back to the marriage referendum or the eighth referendum, and I'm looking at Liveline in particular in the lead up to both of those referendums, which where there were complex issues debated on air for two or three weeks in the lead up to that, and where people expressed their opinions freely on air and where the, the country could be heard debating. And the fact is that at the end of the day, Liveline were getting phone calls on this, on these issues. And that's why Liveline, that's how Liveline works. So there was and is interest in these areas. And it's Liveline and it's RTE's job, comfortably or uncomfortably, to air and debate the issues. Sarah got right to the nub of the debate with one question about conflicting rights. The right to be heard and to express your point of view versus the right to live in a society where you don't have to listen to people questioning your existence. Very many people, both in the LGBTQ community and outside it, have said that what Liveline did over those three days was debate trans people's very existence, whether or not trans women exist, trans men exist, with some people claiming they don't. Yeah, but Liveline also had on the programmes, on all of those programmes, trans people who were very humanly expressing their situation down to the extent of in one of the programmes, I can't remember, the specific days was on where um, where one of the callers in apologised to one of the trans women on the programme for an opinion that they had. That's what Liveline is about. Mini Driver of all people and Ryan Tuberty ended up having a conversation about changing language on Thursday. Like, is she an actor or an actress or does she mind what she's called? You, you you were talking about actresses, as as you were once called. Uh, we're regularly I don't told... mind being called an actress. I mean, I honestly, like, you can call me Bob if you want. Like, I'm going to do me, no matter what you call but me. But you see, the difficulty is I could be cancelled for calling you an actress. I feel incredibly sorry for the narrowing of our language around, and that it's so... What the nomenclature is 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 has suddenly become more important than than who we are and what we say as people, like regardless of gender, um, regardless of how other people uh, say we should be appropriately labelled. I think that all labels are rubbish, and that we need to sort of connect back a little bit more with our humanity in general and stop getting caught up in the weeds of. Um, I think there is this this moment where there is reaction and there was a need, there is a need for reformation. And as with most things, there's an overcorrection that happens. And then hopefully, you know, we come back to a place that is more measured, more considered, more, I hope, more loving and less, you know, full of cancellation and bitterness because it's, it's really hard. I don't, I don't know why we'd want to change things to a place where, um, it, there's even there's the same amount of stricture just with yeah. a different set of of rules. It's awful how one can say something and then literally there is there is no it's the no margin for mistakes when our life that's what this, my book was about was mm. about how mistakes turn into your life. They are your life. They are the you know they're the they define you. They, they do and they much can. more than your successes. Like you, you learn a, a hundred times more from having messed something up than yeah. you do from 
And I, I, I don't know why that is. I just know that that is how it is, just from observing things for 52 years. So to get rid of our ability to make mistakes and then evolve, be forgiven and move on, like it, it feels... Um, it feels very hard. It feels like we're creating an, an impossible, like we, we, it, it's, it's, it's impossible to move forward under those conditions, you know. It was a very absorbing and engaging conversation about women being forced to stay in their lane and how she had grown beyond the role defined for her mostly by men. In particular, a potential life and career defining encounter with the now convicted sex offender and prisoner but back then, highly influential film producer, Harvey Weinstein. And careful now, folks, there are adult themes in this next bit. Listen, women being reduced to... I, I, I can't say that word. I can't even say what he said about me on, you know... We, I can paraphrase if you like. Yeah, please. How would you paraphrase it? I would say that Harvey... Harvey because we, 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 I could do it two ways. I can say it and we can beep it or I can say it in a polite way. So I'll say it... He's, no, I'll say, no, I'll, say I'll, it and beep it. I'll say it and beep it. Because people will... They can, they can, they can unhear it. <laughs> OK. You, but I don't want to hurt you by saying it. No, you don't. I can say it. Here, beat me. OK. What did Harvey Weinstein say about so you? He, oh, I sort of built this up. So he said that um, when I auditioned for Good Will Hunting, um, and it was a powerful... Um, amazing moment. Like, I think auditions are extremely powerful. They're where you get to... to um, I was as much auditioning them as they were auditioning me. And we had this great, com- like, dramatic conversation with the, the director and the actors, and it was amazing. Mm. But Harvey Weinstein um, said that he wasn't going to hire me for this movie because I was un- um in his words. And he was very open about this, and he, he said this to the casting director and to my agent and ultimately to me and you know at the time I was a 20 what was I 26 year old young woman already with just the general insecurities that come from being a young woman um, to have this powerful man bring this word down upon my head and my body on myself was 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 terrible it was terrible and it was something that I would sort of negotiate with in my head for a really long time afterwards. However, um, this is something that has women being reduced to their um, to their sexual um, appropriateness is mm. something that has been going on forever and mm. ever. And women then believing that their worth is defined by how sexually accepted they are or how sexy they mm. are is also something that young women have had to negotiate forever. And so I knew, I mean, I know I wasn't alone in it. Was it rank and revolting? Yeah. Was it so awful that nobody took him to task over it and everyone just was sort of like, yeah, I mean, that is sort of, you know, that's sort of what he thinks. And it took men standing up to it. It took the the writers and the actors and the director and, and the actual man who produced the film to stand up and say, no, this is the person that we want. Um, and the, as they say, the kid stays in the picture. You you stayed in that film, Goodwill Hunting. I did. And regardless I did. of what that, that, that uh, creature said about you. I did, yeah. She did, yeah. But it was still a devastating experience, as she told Ryan, because she thought that it defined her worth. Returning to... 
homegrown controversies. The freedom of the President to give his opinion was hotly debated throughout the week. Morning Ireland played an excerpt from a speech in which he referred to government housing policy as our great, great failure. I feel that I, as President, have to speak very directly about this. Housing and the basic needs of society should never have been left to the marketplace. It is the mad speculative money that is destroying our country, which we are welcoming, which we shouldn't be. The fact of the matter is, let's house our people, let's educate our people, let's show that no one is going hungry, let's show that there is no one excluded from any part of our society. That's what we should be celebrating a hundred years on from the time we got the opportunity to be an independent people. Let all the county managers and the directors of services all over the country have a good long look at what is happening in Wicklow and Kildare and ask themselves the question before their next monthly meeting, why aren't we doing something similar? What is stopping us? I spend a great deal of my time, for example, meeting people who are celebrating Ireland's membership of the Security Council, membership of the Council of Europe, but then I have to go over to Galway, where John, and I, where John Craddock and I are from, to address yet again something that is there as bad as it was 50 years ago, a halting site for travelling people next to the rubbish dump out the Caroline as you head to Hedford. And that's something that shouldn't be. For 50 years it's like that. And all of the time it's very difficult. It isn't difficult. It is immoral, wrong, irresponsible to leave people in the conditions we have left some of our travelling people. Fionn Sheehan, Ireland editor at Independent Newspapers, suggested that the President was reverting to left-wing firebrand type, possibly with an eye to his legacy. Yeah, it, it's very much the, the return of the, the radical left-wing maverick uh, speeches that you used to see from Michael Lee Higgins throughout the, the 80s, 90s uh, and, and 2000s. And, you know, there's very little in it, actually, that he says that the, the public as a whole would, would disagree with. Uh, mm. He is correct that the, the housing situation is, is now coming to something of, of a perfect storm. However, he, he was going even further... He makes a reference to the poor law system. So he's basically referring to the delivery of housing and public services uh, to pre-famine times and, and, the, and the workhouses. So that's how bad he, he's, he's considering things uh, at the moment. So it, it looks like, you know, he's got three years left uh, in, in his term, probably looking at, at, the, at legacy uh, at this point. But largely speaking, I think government ministers know he remains immensely popular uh, with with the population uh, and the, the public are behind him. And if and if okay. they come out uh, and criticise him, well, they're they're going to get a belt back. Is it actually a constitutional crisis, though, when the president criticises government? Because typically in the past, when the president has been critical, the government won't criticise him back, but will defend its achievements. And in a day or two, everyone moves on. It isn't a crisis. Constitutional lawyer Sean O'Farrell told Claire Byrne, as long as everyone agrees with the president's opinions. But what if in the future we elected a racist or a misogynist president who felt emboldened to speak their mind then because of this precedent? I think it's important to say, I think the president is speaking very much 
in, on a very important topic that the vast majority of Irish people, I think, will agree with him. And I, I suspect the vast majority of TDs and even government ministers w- will agree with him. But it's, it's the fact that he's saying it and the manner in which he's saying it is what's causing concern. And if that continues into the future, you know, what happens if we have a person in the future who, who doesn't speak on something that has maybe the universal support or isn't as popular as, as President Higgins is? That's the question about precedent. And all his predecessors have been very couched in how they've done it. And I'm thinking in particular of President Robinson and President McAleese, who, who were both absolute experts at this, where they could make their points and get kind of soft power across without crossing the line where... My own feeling is that President Higgins probably has crossed the constitutional line here. Mm-hmm. And what happens then as a result if the line has been crossed? Well, that's, that's, that's a whole other question. And, and there's very little that can happen. But I suppose, you know, we know that there, there are back channels and there are, you know, regular discussions where the Taoiseach of the day keeps the president updated on the affairs of the state and, and what's happening within the state. And I'd wonder, would something be mentioned there in a, in, in a subtle way saying, you know, you, you, you keep to your own lane and we'll keep to our lane? Um, but the government of the day can never criticise the president, you know, and that, that's another convention that's well established. The president's and Live Line's controversies were new this week, but the latest iteration of Brexit, the PERMA controversy, was there all week too. The British government's unpicking of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Claire Byrne asked the SDLP's Claire Hanna, was the British government gaslighting us, presenting the Northern Ireland Protocol as the problem, when it was in fact the solution? I think the UK government are finding that the mileage is in the problem and, and, and not in the solution. And I agree with your previous contributor that that, that the protocol isn't the problem, it's the solution. Brexit is, is, is the problem to this. And part of the uh, trouble for the last um, kind of year in this iteration of the Brexit dramas, but for the last six years, is that you don't know um, what the UK's bottom line is. They aren't clear about the points um, where they want to land and they bring in, um, if it really is about uh, kind of the movement of goods and the sea border, bringing in issues around uh, ECJ jurisdiction and so on are clearly designed just um, to make the problem unsolvable and just to get their back benches. Well, we're saying that Boris Johnson was asked about this in the last little while and he said, look, it's no big deal. We're just fixing a bureaucratic problem and he doesn't understand, he says, why there's this overreaction and this rush to say that there will be a trade war now between the UK and the EU. Is there anything in what he has said this morning that makes sense to you? No, and I think like most people, I wouldn't believe Boris Johnson if he told me it was Monday. He has been entirely mendacious throughout this process. He has uh, repeatedly changed uh, his his position. He has explicitly and directly lied to the people of Northern Ireland and to his own party and to his own parliament um, consistently. And I, he he uh, my own engagements with him lead me to believe he doesn't fully understand this. But all of his public pronouncements uh, indicate that he certainly does not care. Um, um, about uh, about the outcomes, it is particularly frustrating um, to, to hear the the the. the, the justification as if it's about protecting the Good Friday Agreement and you spoke about people uh, being gaslit we were promised sunlit uplands and we are living in gaslit uplands Claire Hanna speaking to Claire Byrne We are mired in this and going nowhere fast but Claire Byrne's programme the next day tried to do something novel in response Former Irish ambassador to the UK Bobby McDonough inspired Claire to ask if we are where we are what else might we do to make things better? 
you know, I, I was on a, a chat recently with David Liddington, the former British minister, who was a wonderful man, who was saying, you know, we, we must find new ways of developing the British-Irish relationship. And um, I said, I, I completely agree with him, but unfortunately that's been stopped in its tracks for the foreseeable future because of the appalling, untrustworthy behaviour of the current government in London. But I sincerely hope that someday we can get back to where we were, were before. So by the following day, they had tracked down the man Bobby McDonough had been chatting to, former British Minister David Liddington. Good morning. Liddington is that exceptional kind of Tory politician who, because of the interest he takes in Ireland, can actually pronounce the word Taoiseach correctly. Claire asked him if we could no longer be BFFs over Brexit, was there at least the hope of being frenemies about other things? Oh, I completely agree with that. And, and I've, I very much welcomed um, various statements in recent years, by, both under the current Irish government and its predecessor by the, the Taoiseach. OK, well, nearly and certainly better than most. By Punisher Leo Varadkar and by Simon Coveney at different times, who've said, right, we need to look at things like um, you know, institutionalising summits between Taoiseach and Prime Minister. We need to think about things like joint cabinet meetings. Um, I mean, I, when I was in government, you know, was suggesting ideas like um, exchanges of civil servants and sort of operational meetings at regular intervals, because that bilateral relationship is so important to both countries. Um, I think that um, I, I, my sense is that there is not at the moment, there are for various reasons, the appetite in either London or Dublin to make that a priority at the moment. Um, I do very much hope that that if we can sort out these issues over the the protocol and reach a satisfactory compromise, then um, the, the greater urgency will be given to those those talks about how you um, re-establish and institutionalise a strong bilateral relationship in the future. Some British Conservative MPs have criticised the government, the Irish government's response to all of this, you know, saying it is the Irish government that hasn't cooperated, that hasn't negotiated, that has sided with Brussels and closed its ears to Britain. Do you think that Ireland has any culpability here? I think Ireland has, um, you know, obviously Irish ministers at all times have acted in you know, as best they could in the interests of Ireland, primarily, which is a perfectly reasonable thing for them for them to do. And sometimes in in the process of the Brexit negotiations, stretching back over Theresa May's time as well as Boris Johnson's, so you know, that has meant Dublin taking positions that were not what London ideally would have wanted. But but my experience, certainly when I was in government, um, and um, from what I have observed since, is that. Ireland has often been the voice that has, in Brussels, been in, able to interpret the UK and explain UK politics to other member states and uh, members of the institutions of the EU who perhaps don't have that intimate understanding of UK politics that so many senior Irish ministers and officials do have. And I always found that, you know, being able to talk, because I, I used to, to Simon Coveney on a regular basis, we'd, we'd text or phone each other, let us try to let each other know if a decision announcement was coming, even if it was an unwelcome one, particularly, particularly if it wasn't going to be an unwelcome one, and try to find a way through and work, work together. That helped. I know that when the commission made its short-lived, you know, very clumsy suggestion of uh, uh, using Article 60 of the protocol on uh, COVID vaccines back in uh, was it January um, 
2021, I think. 21, right? But that was the T-Shock. It was the T-Shock who intervened immediately with the president of the commission to tell her this is absolutely daft and extremely damaging and and, and then the commission backed down at a rate of knots. Good at explaining the British to Brussels, but maybe not as successful at explaining ourselves to the British. David Liddington talking to Claire Byrne. Back in a moment, more after these. And welcome back. Now, if you were thinking that I might be about to use the ad break as a way of introducing a change of tone and direction for today's programme, you would be mistaken. The week continued as it had started with a fractious and testy exchange in the doll. Leah Bradker and Piers Doherty were the people in question today. The Taunashire has never been behind the door and throwing mud at Sinn Féin. Micheál Martin has had his own rows with Mary Lou Macdonald, but today Leah Bradker almost brought it to a whole new level. Drive Times' Fergal Keane reported on what the Taunashire and Sinn Féin's Piers Doherty said to each other, about each other, on the record of the doll. Taunashe, as you hosted a private dinner last night to celebrate Fine Gael's decade in power, the ESRI was finalising their report on energy poverty in this state as prices increase at the fastest rate in 40 years. Today's report found that the average household is now spending 2,000 more on fuel and energy, and this could increase by another 1,500. And let me tell you this, Taunashe, the last thing they're thinking about is raising a glass to Fine Gael's success, because what they're worried about is how they can get to the end of the week. What, how they're worried about is how they will pay the bills at the end of the month or put food in the ta- on their table for their children. First of all, I think, think that was a cheap shot. Um, I hosted a dinner last night to thank colleagues for their years of service, and there was no public money involved. Um, you host dinners in America. You charge people $1,000 a plate to attend, and your party leader flies first class to get there. That's what you do in the middle of a, of a cost of living crisis. Mm. And I believe she's about to announce another first class trip to Australia, uh, which oh. she'll be undertaking uh, in the next, um, the next uh, um, uh, couple of weeks, where she'll be um, clinking champagne glasses with uh, the Trinity alumni in uh, Australia and uh, meeting the Australian Business Association. So that's a cheap shot, particularly coming from a hypocritical party like yours, a party that receives millions of donations from vagabonds uh, who live in a caravan, a party that please, is please. one of the biggest landlords in the state that Come owns on without interruption, please. Uh, and, uh, and a person who operates his constituency please. office using public money from some sort of Republican company. So cheap shots, particularly coming from you, um, should be seen as what they are from the Irish people. Had it stopped there? Well, that would have been one thing. But it went a good deal further. It got very personal. And we know that the Taunashta is under investigation for that alleged leak of a government document. Now, that was brought up by Pierce Doherty in his next question. Leo Varadkar, as he is wont to do, hit back straight away. And I think most people would be hard pushed to recall a more personalised attack in the Dáil in recent years than this one. Well, I think mate, your, your opening gambit uh, just again explains how out of touch your government is. And I really thought somebody who... Who, in which the DPP is currently assessing whether they'll prosecute you under the Corruption Act, maybe you would be a bit more humble in relation to your response. But let me put it to the, let, let, me, let, me put it, let me put it to you this. This report isn't just expectable. We knew it was going to happen because you have failed to act in relation to protecting those most vulnerable. Deputy, I think that was another 
cheap shot and a very and, and 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 a very personal shot and it says a lot about you it says a lot about you um, and the nature and the character of kind of person you are and it's particularly strange coming from you because you were prosecuted you abused mistreated Agarda Shiakona for that you were prosecuted you were found guilty uh, yes you got away without a conviction uh, because of your age at the time but you were actually prosecuted you were arrested that's what happened to you. And in your party, there are a huge number of convicted criminals uh, in your party and in your wider Republican family, uh, whether that is tax dodgers like Slab Murphy, a good Republican, according to Mary Lou MacDonald, a good Republican, a tax dodger, um, people who are convicted for uh, murder. Um, we know what your party's attitude is to rape and paedophiles and what you've done in relation to that. So your, 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 cheap, shots, your, cheap, shots, your cheap shots say a lot more about you than they do about me. Mitt Aaron might consider investigating whether it was the collective national sharp intake of breath at this moment that was responsible for that weird high-pressure weather we had this week. It says in the papers the next morning, provided possible context for what the Thonishta had said. Fine Gael TD's given detailed plan for attacks on Sinn Féin says the headline on page one of the Irish Independent above Philip Ryan's story that Fine Gael has compiled a secret dossier detailing politically damaging information about Sinn Féin TDs. We're told the 18-page document is called Sinn Féin Hypocrisy. So if the Tónista's remarks weren't off the cuff, is this shouty, more Westminster-style punch-and-judy politics going to be where the government is going to take us, Claire Byrne wanted to know, from one of Leo Varadkar's colleagues. Well, Sean Fleming, it might be shouty, it might be unedifying, but it does get headlines, it does get attention, it does get social media reaction. And if the purpose is to let people know this is all about Fine Gael and Sinn Féin, it seems to be working. I don't believe so. Um, it's working in the extent that we were discussing it here this morning rather than the substance of what the issue was yesterday. Um, there, there Coming on to that in a minute. I and, you know, what we need to do for the mm. budget and cost of living. And, and I would agree, um, actually, a lot with what um, Ivan has just said. Um, women don't want to come into a chamber when you're, you're just there between a Punch and Judy show. That's what yesterday was. We were talking about the Punch and Judy show. Nothing in that debate did anything to help anybody in Ireland except the hardcore supporters in both parties. They're just ple- um, appealing to their both So Leo Varadkar shouldn't have pulled that one out of the hat in the way that he did. Well, I would say to both sides, if you live in a glass house, you shouldn't throw stones. And both of them live in glass houses when it comes to these issues and both of them are throwing stones. That's their strong words now for somebody who is your no, colleague that, in government. No, I, I, I am clear. Um, Pierce brought up the issue about the DPP. And Leo responded back, who's under investigation by the DPP. One, one had been before the courts. I didn't know anything about this. It's a matter of public record, and I don't. I presume lots of people may have known about it. And then, well, so Pierce Doherty says in his statement later that it had been widely reported. Yeah, and I accept that. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the the coverage I saw in the media. I think there were twenty one. Their first offence, really. Yeah. Well, and we won't go over it because yeah. it was, the okay. judge made the decision. And uh, good, the judge made that, his decision. That, 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 that charge be dismissed. The punch and judy show will get headlines, we'll get discussion, we'll get both sides exercise. But what I'm saying is, I actually think, and I support by the fact, the Irish people ultimately are more intelligent than that. And they want to know the bread and butter substance issues that will affect them in the budget, the cost of living. Mm-hmm. And while this is, you know, good mm-hmm. theatre. It doesn't do anything to help the people of Ireland. And the people of Ireland will eventually say, they enjoy the Punch and Judy show, let's be clear about that. But they will, then they'll go to do the shopping tomorrow in the supermarkets 
and that debate, if that's where politicians are at, they would prefer their politicians to be dealing with the issues of the day. Fiona Falls, Sean Fleming. Now this spat may have hogged a few front pages, but it didn't succeed in squeezing out a handful of other controversies in the news this week. On Sunday, this week presenter Justin McCarthy spoke to a Somali asylum seeker outside the Red Cow Moran Hotel, where many were reportedly being forced to sleep on the floor due to overcrowding. People just sleeping. Uh, some people just sleeping uh, down for all. They're sleeping on the ground, are sleeping they? On the ground, yeah. Are there many people sleeping on the ground? Many people, yeah. Are there families sleeping there? Are there children? Uh, everybody they sleeping there. There was a man from Somalia speaking to me at the Red Cow Moran Hotel last evening. We're joined in studio now by Nick Henderson, Chief Executive of the Irish Refugee Council, who also visited the Red Cow Moran Hotel during the week. Uh, good afternoon, Nick, and welcome to the programme. What did you see when you went to the Red Cow Hotel? Thank you. Yes, I attended the hotel on Thursday. And where we have most concern and really very grave concern is the use of ballrooms. There are two ballrooms in in that hotel and I personally observed in each uh, many people uh, sleeping on the floor uh, without beds as far as I could see uh, using duvets for mattresses and some people had uh, gathered uh, chairs to try and create a makeshift bed. Uh, There are two types of ballrooms. I understand that previously there was one large area, but a partition has now been placed uh, in between the two. And approximately, as far as I could see, approximately 30 people are are in each each ballroom. We have very, very serious concerns about this. this. Uh, It plainly is contradictory, I believe, to basic health and safety. I believe it also raises issues around fire safety. And I think there is also a, a question around the use of public money uh, to accommodate people uh, in such a manner. From this week on Sunday, and the temperature is rising week after week on the cost of living crisis too. Last night on Drive Time, reporter Barry Lenehan spoke to Katrina Toomey from Cork's Penny Dinners about what she was seeing. I feel it's important that I come out and be the voice of the people that show up at our door every day who are heartbroken, who are distressed and who are feeling the pain of all that is happening to them. Everything in our city seems to be, and I suppose all over the country, seems to be hitting big time on top of people. They're on the back of a pandemic. We're supposed to be in recovery from the pandemic. and now we're being hit with the cost mm-hmm. of living crisis. And so in terms of food poverty in particular, what would you compare it to? It's a famine of a sort, isn't it? When so many people are short of food, well, that's a famine. And again, it's something that our country, you know, went through experience before we learned it all in the history books. And we thought we'd never see a repeat of it. We see it on the TV, out in places like Ethiopia and and people going through famines out there. And here we have one, I believe, you know, at home. You'd really go that far? I would. Look, we're not talking about 10 or 15 or 20 people. We're talking about thousands of people. They're on the radio every day. They're talking about their plight. People, there are so many instances that causes a plight for a person. And it all ends up with food poverty because it's the last thing that people will spend money on. It, so, it has been said that uh, tomorrow's demonstration in Cork anyway could be the, one of the largest the city has seen in, in quite some years. What sort of message would that send if the turnout is as large as that? I don't know about the numbers. I don't know, will they be big or will they be small? Uh, to me, it doesn't matter. I just feel that I have to go out there. I have to say my piece. It's non-political. I'm going out to say something 
radically is wrong. People are dying. People are hurt. People can't pay bills. People are hungry. People are cold. People are afraid to cook. They're afraid to turn on their cooker in case they'll use up too much electricity. And that's been going on for quite a while. And what can what can the government do? They need to take stock very, very quickly of what they should be doing to look after the people they were elected to look after. Katrina Toomey talking to Barry Lenehan ahead of a protest at one o'clock this afternoon. The political long, hot summer was being mirrored in the actual weather this week, with everyone remarking that all that cloud and heat were a bit weird. It's already 20 degrees in the Phoenix Park in Dublin, but you might notice the cloud is already starting to push its way southwards. It was explained by cold air coming from the Arctic, meeting the heat wave currently baking the continent. Samantha Libreri spoke to climatologist John Sweeney on Thursday about the links between the punishing temperatures across southern Europe and the climate crisis. Events like this in Spain and and probably also in North America are up to 10 times more likely to be occurring now as a consequence of climate change. The Mediterranean, of course, is a hotspot and uh, in Spain in particular, summer is now already one month longer than it was uh, in the 1980s. So uh, it's not surprising that we're getting these more frequent events and they're quite serious. We have an orange warning out over much of Spain where temperatures were over 35 degrees centigrade over almost the whole country earlier this week. So um, it has consequences. It has consequences, obviously, as you hinted, uh, in terms of of, uh, agriculture, but also in terms of health. And um, we know that uh, heat waves do kill people, and they kill people on a fairly substantial scale in a very hidden way in many respects. 70,000 died, for example, in Paris in 2003. Um, We know that um, many of those people are elderly, many of those people have problems with their respiratory system as well. And as well as that heat dome that we're now seeing building up over Europe, of course it's trapping air pollution at the same time. So we're getting the worst of both worlds in many respects. And I think that the the health problem is one that's going to grow in importance over coming years. I read this morning that at sustained temperatures of 33 or 34 degrees, the average worker loses 50% of his or her work capacity. That's according to the International Labour Organisation. But what other economic impacts does extreme heat have? Well, I think economic impacts at the moment are really going to be concerning in terms of grain production uh, in Western Europe. Um, For example, much of the Iberian Peninsula has had a historic drought uh, over the winter period. It's had the hottest May, for example, um, in in something like uh, 50 years at this stage. So there are a lot of concerns in terms of food production. And of course, we now know that we're going to have problems in terms of grain over the coming winter in particular due to what's happening elsewhere in Europe. So uh, many farmers are seeing the loss of their olive crop, the loss of their wheat crop. Um, They're seeing an inability to access irrigation water. So I think we can expect to see uh, fairly substantial reductions in food production in those parts of the world. John Sweeney on Morning Ireland on Thursday. More after these. So yes, I am sorry. It has been a testy old week on Radio 1 this week. Don't blame me, I'm just the messenger. Except for this, before I go. (laughs) 
Sean Rocks and the Arena team spotted an anniversary that we could all unite behind. Forty years ago this month saw the release of Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial, a film about a stranded alien, a boy called Elliot who discovers it, and a bond of friendship that remains as heartbreaking today as it was back in 1982. Aided by John Williams' score, which we were just listening to, and performances from then-child actors Drew Barrymore and Henry Thomas, the film soared to become the highest-grossing film of the year, capturing four Academy Awards, nine Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, and has endured as a universal favourite in the decades since. With me in studio this evening to talk about all things E.T. is John Maguire. And now, John, rewind the clock four decades, please. I want the young John Maguire. I want him sitting in the Ashling Cinema in Ballinasloe. <laughs> That's right. What is he doing and what is he seeing? Well, he's crying his eyes out. First of all, I wept. I cried <laughs> myself dry, Sean. It was, uh, E.T. was an emotional, a cathartic emotional outburst for the whole planet, I have to say. Yeah, uh, everybody cried. Everybody in the cinema was crying. How do you know everybody was crying? Because I turned around at a, a key moment at the point where he, uh, little E.T., the extraterrestrial, points his long glowing finger at the boy Elliot's heart and he croaks his goodbye I'll be right here and I turned around right at that moment and all you could see like a like a spray of diamonds across a jeweler's mat it was just wet tears reflected from the screen a sea of faces everybody was in floods men, of tears men, women, it's children. one of my earliest clear, it's exactly men, women and children it's one of my earliest cinema memories and I have a very clear recollection of it E.T. was, John McGuire told us, a very simple but brilliant inversion of everything that we had ever seen about aliens before. He presented no threat to the planet, a planet 40 years ago that was hopelessly divided, pretty much as it is now. In fact, you're kind of left wishing that E.T. would come back. This is unvarnished, uncynical emotion is key to our view of this film 40-odd years later. Virtually all previous science fiction films had grown out, like Mm. we were saying earlier, of that fear. And this was really a film about love, made and released early in the Reagan era, early in those years, at a time when American cultural values had taken a massive knock in the 60s and 70s, Watergate and the Vietnam War and all of that kind of stuff, Uh, and the oil crisis and the Iran hostage crisis. And the nation was convulsed. And in comes this little muddy, three-foot-tall, squeaky monster and tells people to start loving each other and points his finger at his glowing heart and all that kind of stuff. And people take it. They take it on. And it really had a massive change. uh, And you can see that. Americans are always seeking reconciliation. They're always worried about their split nation. They're always looking to try to come together and find brotherhood and unity and all that kind of stuff. But the perceived message of the times albeit, you know, clothed in that kind of political conservatism was one of hope and love and nostalgia. And that still stands today. That's the legacy. A film for everyone to love forever. Good morning and thanks for listening.